back to the East Career Cast, a series of audio interviews with leaders in the field of acute care surgery designed to provide you with practical information regarding career development, leadership, and career challenges. Today's episode is part of our past president series, and our guest is Dr. Bruce Crooks. Dr. Crooks was the president of East in 2017. He is currently the Charles F. Cruz Professor of Surgery and Division Chief as well as Associate Chief of Quality of Perioperative Services at the Medical University of South Carolina. Our conversation today addresses capitalizing on opportunity, evolving your career as our field evolves, and finding your fraction within acute care surgery. Dr. Cooks speaks often of his evolving career in surgical quality, and he gave his presidential address on the topic of quality and trauma care. You can find a link to his presidential address in the show notes. Okay, here's the show. Dr. Crooks, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. How are you? I am very well. For those who uh, wouldn't know this, Dr. Crooks and I go way back. His first day at MUSC was my very first day in the ICU as an intern, and our mid-level resident was on vacation. So it was just he and I. It was a historic day. It was great, and I will never forget the way that you handled things with such grace and such patience. And the, the key phrase that always sticks out in my head is it's all gravy, baby. Well, many lives were lost that day, but we survived. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Crooks, we, Bruce, we have you on our, our past president series of the career cast to talk about, you know, your, your career to this point and how you got here and what uh, lessons you can continue to bestow upon the young developing acute care surgeon. Um, so for starters, for those who don't know you, can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, where you came from and how you got into medicine? Uh, sure. So I grew up in just outside of New York City in northern New Jersey. My father was an engineer and industrial designer. So he went to both engineering school and art school. And I got the science side of things from him. When I was growing up, my dad was very hands-on mechanical kind of guy. So we were always fixing things and fooling around with things. And I thought that about early part of high school, I kind of came to the decision that, you know, fixing things with my hands and with my mind were kind of cool and nothing would be better than being a surgeon. So I kind of got stuck in this whole concept early on. Um, I did my undergrad at University of Michigan. And then went from there to Mount Sinai School of Medicine in New York City. So I kind of bought back and forth across the country. And then uh, fell in love with uh, trauma during a rotation at Temple with with Amy Goldberg, who I am forever indebted to to this day. Because I got to watch this uh, total spitfire go out there and just run a trauma bay like there was no tomorrow. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And I was hooked. Um, I did, uh, I decided I wanted to do trauma and I interviewed at University of Miami at that time for, at Ryder with uh, Steve Cohn and that gang. And Steve offered me a, a gig. On the other hand, you know, the serendipity kind of plays a little bit of a role in that I didn't have a chance to do a lot of research during my residency. And Steve offered me one year of being in the lab uh, doing large animal shock and traumatic brain injury models with uh, Ken Proctor. Uh, who I am also forever indebted to. So I spent a year in the lab and the the big deal, that was kind of my entree into East in a lot of ways, because the big push was for me to generate research and obviously get it on in a meeting. And being in Miami with East being held at Disney, 
it was an easy thing for us to apply. So, you know, you rush your abstract out to the mailbox and get it out there. And I was fortunate to be able to attend uh, the East meeting every year when I was a fellow. And for me, that was the coolest organization ever. It was just awesome. Neat people, um, very friendly atmosphere, very research forward. And most importantly, uh, for me, they had access to, you know, research grants or research funds. I then wound up doing a, a, a series of studies with Steve Cohn and uh, Kim Proctor on near infrared spectroscopy and wound up winning the resident, um, the Alexander Award my last year as a fellow, um, but also won uh, the Wyeth Erst uh, Research Scholarship that year, which was a huge boost to me for the early part of my career, which all started up in uh, Vermont at that time. So it was a lot of fun. So you kind of went up and down the entire eastern seaboard in the early uh, part of your career? Yes. Yeah, I went New York to Ann Arbor, back to New York, to Philly, to Miami, to University of Vermont in the end. And picked up, I mean, just some unbeatable mentors along the way. Yes. And, the, you know, the mentorship is incredibly important. And I'm sure you would say the same thing. And I think a lot of the Junior East people would say the same thing. You wind up latching, you find someone that you really, really admire who has the same style as you do, and you kind of latch on to them. And next thing you know, you have this lifelong friend and lifelong mentor that can help you out. And I still call my mentors. I'll, I'll still talk to Steve Shackford and Steve Cohn and, and say, hey, what's going on? And Amy Goldberg. And I still ask some questions about life and careers and things like that. You know, they're they're clearly brighter people than I and you need their input and their and their thoughts. It's incredibly valuable. And that's a big part of what East is. Developing that fellowship and those pathways to mentorship are, are were always incredibly important to me and put me in immense debt to the to the group, you know. Incredible group. Yeah. My well, favorite by far. I heartily agree. What was your path through East uh, in terms of the organization itself uh, that led you to ultimately the presidency? So as I said, I went, the Alexander Award was a big one for me. I didn't realize how big it was going to be in my career at the time. And the Wyeth Earth Scholarship was a big deal for me. When I was coming out of my residence, my fellowship, um, I was recruited up to Vermont by Steve Shackford, who was the chair there. And Shackford had been doing the exact same type of research I was doing as a, as a fellow looking at um, traumatic brain injury in a swine model. And Shackford had a lab that essentially was mothballed. And he said, hey, listen, let's take your scholarship. I will essentially give you my lab and give you time and make sure you have it. And I will mentor you through the early part of your career, which for me was tremendous. So East not only set me up with a resident award to say, hey, listen, you do some good quality research, but also put me on this path to doing research early on with a bona fide mentor. So it was, it was uh, when I look back on it, it was very fortuitous and it worked out incredibly well for me. That got me into Vermont, and the Vermont experience uh, was wonderful. I worked with Fred Rogers as my division chief and Shackford as my chair, who were both incredibly supportive of me uh, early on. I uh, was fortunate enough to be turned over. The, I had the trauma medical directorship turned over to me very early. So I began to learn a lot from that, quite frankly, uh, very quickly. And running, running that trauma group was incredibly valuable. While the lab experience um, sputtered along early, like many young investigators do, 
the challenge that I had was about um, five years into it, um, Shackford decided he was going to step down as chair. So um, I lost my mentor there. And then my division chief also said, hey, guess what? I'm out of here, too, because he was a big Shackford guy. So they both left and they got a new chair who asked me to be the interim division chief. And with that, what happened for me, and it's funny how life goes, uh, is I just didn't have time to run a lab anymore. So my lab kind of petered out as I got more tied up into trying to be a junior faculty leader and trying to be a trauma medical director. It consumed more of my time. What did happen, though, uh, is we were were short faculty members, so we all had to really work very, very hard, unfortunately. And the downside was I realized uh, probably after about a year and a half that I really didn't see eye to eye with the new chairman. He hadn't recruited me. He was a a surge oncology faculty member, and he and I just had different views of where the program should go, which is okay. What happened as a result of that is I started to have a push meaning a reason to leave that job. And at the same time, Samir Fakhri had taken over the, the division chief job at MUSC, and he called me up and said, hey, why don't you come down? I need a trauma medical director. So now all of a sudden I had a pull too, because I had known Samir from when I was coming out and interviewing, and I had a chance to pick up a mentor again, which was a big deal for me, because I was in a position where I felt I didn't really have a lot of mentorship where I was, to be frank. I had my friends in the East, but I didn't have someone on a day-to-day basis that I could go to and say, hey, you know, what would you do with this or that? Uh, and that's when I left Vermont. It was a very difficult decision for me and a tough one for my family, but wound up opening up a whole series of opportunities uh, for me down the line. So, And specific to East, where did you start out in the organization, hmm. um, like committee-wise? So I started out on the Rural Trauma Committee. The recently revamped Rural Trauma Committee. At that time, it wasn't much of a committee. It was um, it was Mike Rotundo, um, who was the East president, mm-hmm. who had a very strong interest in rural trauma, and he said, "I'm going to make a rural trauma committee," and I got I got put right on that one, which was interesting because you know I was at Vermont at the time, and we were in a true rural trauma system. And Fred Rogers, who's my division chief, was a real guru of rural trauma systems in general, um, so I got to use a lot of his. Um, input and advice on working on the committee. You'll be very happy to hear that the current chair of the rural committee is also a University of Vermont faculty member currently, Alexander Briggs. Oh, there you go. Good times. So the tradition continues. There you go. (laughs) So, you know, I think a lot of us would acknowledge that obviously there's a lot of hard work that goes into getting to where you are. No doubt but there's a decent amount of happenstance in it all? Uh, I think so. I think so. Uh, one thing that Steve Cohn taught me uh, early on when I was a fellow was he said, you have to look at your career at five-year intervals. Every five years, you should have accumulated a series of skills that let you move up on, on the ladder. And that's not perfect advice for everybody. For some people, it'll be a little bit longer. And for some people, it'll be a little bit less. Some people don't want to assume other roles. For me, it was very pertinent advice, and I always looked at it within within those intervals that by the end of five years, I should have accumulated something. And I tr- I've continually tried to look at my career in that in that circumstance, where you're always trying to do something else to kind of advance yourself and scratch some itches. 
Now, the happenstance part, I totally agree with, right? So I came out of fellowship thinking uh, I was going to be a large animal shock trauma kind of researcher, and that was what it was going to be, and I was going to be a penultimate surgeon scientist. And then the leadership part kind of got, kind of began to take take over um, and consume more of my time, just purely out of happenstance, right? And then there's some other crossroads down in my career, which I never would have predicted at the time either. When I coming out of fellowship, I never thought that I'd wind up doing quality for a living, to a large degree, you know. Um, and that was a, that's another you know complete moment of happenstance that little did I realize that I was actually being trained for that as from the TMD perspective. Sure. So you came down to MUSC as the TMD and over the years you have, you're now full professor and division chief, right? Yes, ma'am. And what five-year block are you in right now? Um, so where am I? I'm year, I got to think about this. I'm like year 20, fourth, I think it's the fourth five-year block. Yeah. So what is the theme of said fourth five-year block? So it's been interesting, right? So I came, I came to M, uh, to MUSC. You know, I did the trauma medical director thing, assumed the division chief job, and then um, my chief quality officer came to me, and she's an internist, and I respect her a great deal. She's another mentor along the line, and she said, you know, Bruce, I really, I'm an internist. I don't know anything about surgical quality at all. Um, I know you've been doing it for a while because you're a trauma medical director, and I've seen what you've done, right? So running. Uh, trauma peer review committee and trauma process management committee. She said, I think your skill set will logically carry over into an associate chief perioperative quality officer job because you've done it for so long. And she said, you know, internists can really can hurt people. We can forget their baby aspirin and miswrite a hypertensive, but she's like, surgeons can really screw people up. So I need someone that can monitor that. And that's when I took over that gig. And that was right about the time or prior to my time as East president, which is where the quality bug kind of started to hit me. Since finishing that, I still have the chief quality officer job. What I've become more obsessed with and more interested in lately has been kind of the business side of medicine. I realized to advance a lot of our division's agenda uh, within the C-suite, I had to be able to speak C-suite. Because if you can't speak that business language, the odds of them going and doing a surgical residency and fellowship and becoming understanding your world are very slim. So you need to go the other direction. So my last, my latest one was I just finished an MBA um, at university of South Carolina, which was a great experience. Um, highly recommended. If that's changed a lot of my viewpoints on things as to how to look at and analyze some of the problems that you're working with. You know, it's also changed a lot of the concepts and ways I think about leadership to a large degree and how you run your division. So that's the current phase, and who knows what the next one will be. I joked with my wife that now it's time to get the JD degree and go from there. The trifecta. Yeah, she, she'll kill me if I did that. She'd so love are my it. kids. <laughs> no, she would not. I think I'm done with school. I promise you that. That's, that's probably for the best. Mm-hmm. So how would you say that the MBA influenced your leadership style? Because I think that's probably, I think a lot of people understand the speaking C-suite side of things, but I, I don't, I bet a lot of people wouldn't anticipate it affecting you or you as a leader as much. So I was probably the oldest person in my business school class by, by far, right? So most of my peers had been out in the workforce for five, you know, six years, recent college grads that were looking, that were being sent there by their company to get some business skills. 
What was really interesting to me was being one of the few medical people in the program. Most of the other people are from other businesses, industries, Michelin, Dominion Energy, big companies that had much smaller business units that these people were trying to lead and get through. So what was fascinating was sitting down and talking to them about the problems that they were having on a day-to-day basis at work, which to a large degree were similar to some of mine. Managing people is a big part of being um, a division chief and understanding how to do that. Understanding how to lead is very is um, much more complicated, I think, than we all take it for. Um, under understanding diversity and inclusion and those concepts and how you're going to integrate those into your business are incredibly important. How to communicate, how to lead a meeting, how to lead a business uh, initiative, how to how to write those types of, of documents so you can get yourself heard. And you see a lot of commonalities when you talk to other people in other fields. So it's interesting to hear what they have to say about what's going on in their business and comparing that to what's going on in yours and seeing some of the commonalities there. And you begin to realize that a lot of the good business literature that's out there, the Harvard Business Review and things like that, are really speak to what you do on an everyday basis, even though the article is clearly not written towards healthcare, but it's written towards leadership. You can pick up a lot from looking at those, I find. You know, I think a lot of us can probably relate to, like, being the kid who did the whole group project in school. You know, Mm -hmm. we're used to being very high-functioning, very smart people who are able to get things done, right? That's a bit, that's part of the personality that leads us to the career field that we're in. Um, But at some point along the way, you can't do the whole group project anymore. And learning how to transition out of being that person who's just like, oh, put it all on my back. I can carry it. It's okay. Learning how to transition out of that person and into one that can manage people can be really, really challenging for some people. Uh, it is. It's a, and it's a daily problem that I struggle with. I'll, I'll admit it, right? So especially in the role that we're in, we all try to shoulder too much of the burden too frequently. And that winds up, I think, to some degree, that winds up contributing to our own burnout, right? Because we can't say no, it's inherent to who we are to, um, to some degree. You do have to learn to pace that. There's no question. And as you get older, I think you get a little bit smarter about that. I'm still not an expert. But you have to begin to offload yourself. Otherwise, you're going to explode at some point. And we're all we're all there. You know, we're all stretched thin, don't have enough nurses, don't have enough staff, don't have enough beds. Everything's on back order. Right. It's a tough time right now. Um, and the, the challenge I was actually this is an issue that I'm dealing with at work right now. I think one of the challenges is for surgeons in particular we're the one piece of continuity in the patient spectrum of care, right? So you see the patient in the office you talk, or the trauma bed, you talk to them, you're going to operate on them, you take care of them, you see them postoperatively and, and you know, ultimately discharge them. But all the systems that surround that care paradigm, what's happening in the trauma bay, what's happening in the emergency room, what's happening in the operating room, what's happening in post-op, what's happening in the clinic are your responsibility ultimately where everybody else is siloed out. And that puts a lot of burden on you to make sure things go right. Um, and I think a lot of the present stresses in the medical system where we're so shorthanded, it wind up using the surgeon as the backstop, right? I'll give you a good example. I was talking to a, a colleague the other day who, should, who will go nameless, who found out that all of the trays for the, for the case he was doing uh, had been used for the day. And the central sterile supply and processing just didn't have the bandwidth to process another tray for him. So the staff came to him and said, Dr. X, what other tray can you use to do this case? 
And he told me he had a very difficult moral, uh, ethical decision to make. You know, do I take this patient to the operating room and kind of know I can jury rig something and half, you know, do a halfway good job? Or do I demand excellence and say, no, but I'm going to be the one that has to go out and talk to the patient and tell them, listen, I can't do your case because my hospital can't get their act together and get you the sterile supplies that you need. That's a very difficult position to put an individual in, right? It's hard to put us in that position. I think that leads to a lot of a lot of dissatisfaction at work um, that we're all dealing with right now more and more. I'd yeah. be curious to talk to other people in the organization and see what they're feeling. Yeah. But it's a tough spot. I have been working, you know, as a member of the U.S. military. Obviously, I don't speak for anyone else in the military, but my personal experience of it has been that it is a giant, you know, massive machine. Mm-hmm. And I can execute on the tasks that I've been given, but I can't move this whole machine, right? I can't change the system. I can try. I can sure. try it to, to influence what's around me. But at some point, I have to assuage myself of the guilt that is put on me by things that are out of my control. Yeah, so that that gets interesting, right? So there's two ways to, to begin to look at that. One way to look at it is say, okay, some of these things are beyond my control. I'm just going to have to deal with it. And, and that's an okay approach. And I think that's very reasonable. On the other hand, the other way to approach it is to say, why are we having these logistics issues, right? Why are we having these throughput, throughput issues? How do I uh, begin to try to address those from a leadership perspective? And what tools can I bring to the table to help them understand what I need? And that's, to me, that's where like the MBA begins to fit in. You begin to talk about operations process and logistics and how, um, you know, quite, quite frankly, how widgets move through a factory, right? And what equations govern each step and what your, your bottleneck is and how you fix those things. Um, so those principles that you learn, while they look like they're set up for Goodyear, for stamping out tires, actually have a lot to do with operating rooms and hospitals and throughput and how all those things work. So, you know, if you get fed up with enough with some of that stuff, then it's time to put your leadership hat on and say, okay, let's, let's, let me sit down. I got to talk to my C-suite and begin to figure out how we address these problems. Cause at the end of the day, it's all about the patient you're taking care of and the quality of the care you're delivering. So how do you do good efficacious quality care? Right. That's where things get fun and interesting. And, you know, a good person for that is Mike Chang. Uh, Mike is, uh, he's another good, um, good person to talk to. I've talked to him a couple of times about um, C-suite leadership positions and their functions. And he has a very nice background where he's blending quality with his chief medical officer job. And he's able to begin to execute on the quality needs by working through the C-suite and changing things at his level, which is really interesting. It's not someplace that a lot of us have gone yet because the organization is so so young, right? Relative to some of the other ones, we just um, you're starting to see some of those people bubble up through the organization: the Mike Rotundos, the Mike Changs, the Paul Tahiris, those people that um, saw that as an avenue for leadership and a way to affect change. That is a little different from the way that you and I traditionally think about that. I find it really interesting. Another aspect of our personalities is we all kind of tend to be good at identifying problems, mm-hmm. right? Part yes, of absolutely learning how to develop a differential diagnosis, right? It's inherent to finding, figuring out problems is inherent to what we do, but that can transition into things like logistics and throughputs and being willing and able to take this, the, the similar skill set of 
identifying problems and turning that into identifying potential solutions mm-hmm. in things that are outside of direct patient care. In some ways, there's there's somewhat of a natural synergy uh, there. Absolutely. It's a lot of what a trauma medical director does, right? So if you're the you're the TMD of your organization, you're looking at problems, right? You're designing solutions for them. You're implementing your solution, then you're back checking to make sure that they're actually solving the problem, right? The loop closure. Exactly. Or the classic loop closure, right? And then at the same time, you also wind up integrating a lot of the basic quality tenants of that to a large degree come from business, right? Kaizen and lean and agile and all those really cool uh, business principles begin to spin over into what you do as a trauma medical director. So there is a direct translation there between the two things. And they're not as far apart as you think when it comes down to it. I just think we're so busy training how to do what we do, right? That you don't get exposed to it as much as we should be, but you wind up back stumbling into it because we're, we're bright people, right? And what we're doing is really reinventing the wheel to some degree, which is also really intriguing and interesting, right? So maybe we have some things that we can teach business back. Yeah, I I think the thing that's been the most frustrating for me in that process of translating my skills into the quality and the problem solving in the non-clinical realm has been managing the folks who are really, really good at identifying problems and not at all interested in identifying solutions. Oh, sure. How do you deal with that personality that isn't ready to be part of the solution? So in my experience, when when you have a problem, when you identify a problem, right, the the other way to approach it is to say, how would you solve this? What would you do to make this right? And the interesting thing about flipping that around is that once somebody else comes up with a solution, it says, well, I would probably do this, right? And that's a lot of what trauma trauma peer review is about or uh, trauma operations process. Once you get the buy-in from the frontline staff, now the organic solution begins to present itself and you automatically have buy-in and people have some investment in that, in that solution. And that's where you get successful change. I think the downside is a lot of what we do, and this is the typical surgeon mentality, is you see someone comes to you with a problem. You say, okay, I'll fix it. I'll take care of it. I'll send an email and I'll get to the bottom of it and I'll get back to you. So you go out, you design a solution, fix the problem, come back, and everybody's like, well, that's stupid. Your viewpoint is completely off. You don't do this for a living. You don't get it. You know, why are we doing this? And then the whole system breaks down, right? So that that organic group problem solving, while a little bit more difficult, to say the least, I think has better long-term results when you try to employ that. Group Groupthink is a lot more powerful than uh, the dictatorship. For sure. No, you have to be a dictator sometimes. There's no question, right? That's also part of the game. But when you're dealing with the bigger problems, it's a lot easier to to get the group involved, I think. So one of the ideas that we're talking about in the in the career casts and in the the career development committee is talking about the fraction. So we all in acute care surgery, pretty much all of us have a fraction, a something that is not necessarily clinical but is inherent to our job and inherent to making a group work or a division work well. For some folks, that's being a TMD. For some folks, that's maybe being an ICU director or a Mm -hmm. fellowship program director. You've kind of had all of them at some point be your additional fraction. What do you think it is about you that you've been able to adapt to what your group needed? Well, so I think for me, it's gone back to that stepwise career development, right? So first you be a TMD. You get some buy down for your TMD time. 
then you become a division chief. You get a little bit of buy down for the, the division chief. Um, you start doing the associate chief quality officer job and you say, okay, that there's some buy down there. You have to have the buy down order to function. Now the, cha the challenge is you have to do something for the buy down. The buy down isn't, isn't free, right? Can you just, so can you just define what you mean by buy down? Sure. So for example, and it depends on how your hospital works, right? So in mine, they look at, they say, first crux, you're going to be clinically a 1.0 or a full-time clinician. Okay. That in my system comes with a salary and it comes with a set number of RVUs that I have to generate per year. So say it's a hundred thousand dollars in salary and a thousand RVUs I have to generate, right? You're judged on those metrics, right? Your division chief is going to sit down and look at them and say, did you do 20 inguinal hernias and generate your, your RVUs this year? Yes or no. The buy-down part is somebody comes to you and says, I want you to be trauma medical director. And you say, okay. And they say, we're going to buy down 20% of your salary and give you 20% of your time to do the trauma medical director job. Associated with that, though, are some deliverables on that side. You have to maintain our certification. You have to run trauma peer review. You have to present at your hospital quality committee, all of these things you have to do. And at my institution, they track that with a series. We have to do a series of time, time reports on it to say, this is what I did during this quarter. Here are the projects I'm working on. This is where I am. That's reviewed by my, C, my chief medical officer every year who says, okay, you're doing well with your, con your contract. You are not doing so well with your contract and you're not focusing on your deliverables. But when you get that buy down, that means in, in my hospital that you go from being a 1.0 FDE or a full-time clinician to a 0.8 uh, clinician. So that $20,000 a year salary comes from the hospital, $80,000 is generated off of clinical revenue, and you are now accountable for 800 RVUs per year. The bigger your job, the more deliverables you have on that side, the bigger your buy down is. Now, as a division chief, what I try to do is I, I change our call schedule, our clinical roles to say, okay, uh, Dr. Erickson is my trauma medical director. He is a 0.8 FTE. So he's going to do eight trauma shifts a month. Dr. Uh, Purvey is a 0.9 FTE. She runs our surgical critical care fellowship, the hospital buy down for that is 0.1. So she's going to do nine shifts a month. And we try to make it work around that. Is it perfect? No, it can be a little challenging. Uh, and there are months where we're short people because people are on vacation. Everybody wants to go to East or whatever meeting they want to go to. And people wind up doing more. And the downside tends to be you can take the other jobs home with you, right? So I can do my quality work at home after hours. I can't operate on people after hours at home. So that becomes a little bit of a challenge to say the least. But that's in general the way the system works and how we run it as a division. The trick is on the hospital side is making sure you're deliver you're doing the deliverables and making sure everything's there. So it seems like the a key to making those sorts of things successful is transparency. Do you find that? Uh, I do. Um, although on the other hand, um, we just actually had a big review of the division, uh, kind of an internal review of where we stood. And one thing that came out of that is that I probably need to be more transparent about that, to be frank. So I have to, I'm actually putting together a whole slide deck for my group to say, this is what everybody contributes to the group. One of the problems that we have is our group has grown so much and gotten so big that not everybody knows each other as well as they used to when I first started when it was six of us. Um, so everybody's role has become a little bit muddied. 
And that's where it kind of falls on your division chief, at least in my opinion, to begin to try to clarify that and say, hey, listen, everybody's working really hard. Here's how they contribute. So when you think they're in their office just goofing off, they're actually not. They're working on the medical director side. And that's incumbent upon your chief to do that. Super important. And I probably underestimated that dramatically in my career thus far, to be honest. Is there any uh, like advice you'd give or lessons learned you have for somebody who's going into a new contract situation is looking at what their buy down is going to be? I think one thing I would I would always ask in the interview. So when someone comes to you with it with the job offer, it's always super flattering, right? You're always oh that's so great. You're thinking about me for this. I'm I'm really excited about it. And your knee jerk reaction is automatically to say yes, pretty much no matter what, right? The the challenge though is figuring out what they want out of you. So one thing to ask your interviewer is to say, what does success in this role look like? And what that does is it flips it around a little bit and they begin to define for you um, what parameters are important to that role. And then what you can do on your side of the table is to say to yourself, hmm, they want us to be in the top percentile of ACS uh, or the NTB mortality ratios. That's going to be a lot of work, right? Or they say, hey, listen, we've never been an ACS-COT center before. We want you to make us one. It's going to be a lot of work. Or they say, hey, listen, we're already ACS-COT. We're great. We're doing really well. The whole machine's in place. I think success looks like keeping our keeping the machine running. Not going to be as much work. But once you define that, then you internally have to say to yourself, is one day a week enough to do that? Is two days a week not enough to do that? And then whatever number you come up with, always add a little bit, because I guarantee you the hospital is going to come up with less. The biggest downside for us is surgeons are expensive. So when they do your buy down, you have to realize that they're buying down a significant chunk of your time that normally you're getting reimbursed for at a very high rate, right? You are much more expensive than a pediatrician. So 0.5 of you is a lot of money. 0.5 of a pediatrician is not much. And that's why if you look at C-suites, most C-suites are comprised of pulmonologists, internists, family practice guys. It's very rare to see surgeons in those gigs, partially because we're really expensive. So be cognizant of that fact and realize that no matter what number you come up with, they're probably going to try to negotiate you down. So always overshoot a little bit. It's interesting that we, as a group of people, have a reputation for you know having big egos. And you know in some ways, we kind of have to in order to do the job that we do. Sure. But then for our initial reaction to getting a job offer to be, Oh my God, thank you so much. I'm so honored. I'm so flattered. (laughs) Right. Oh, well, I mean, and and you went through this as a, as a resident, as a fellow, right? So you go through your whole career. Oh, please let me get into college. Please let me go someplace I want it. Oh, please let me get into medical school. Oh, please let me rep match in my residency. Oh, please let me get a fellowship spot. All of a sudden, the shoe flips, and you go from early 30s for the first time in your whole life. It's not asking someone else, please. It's someone else coming to you with an offer. And that, for me, was really, really difficult when I first came out to understand that the shoe was on the other foot now. The tricky part, though, is coming to the realization that there's a lot of good jobs, and people who are coming out of fellowship are really, really well-trained, right? Lots of years and time, and you're not just a dime in a dozen, right? So that now the negotiating power kind of flips. And that's really, really hard for fellows coming out of training to realize and understand that for the first time in their life, they have a choice. You have a choice of what you want to do. And you can say yes or no, or take a job or not change a job. And that's really hard to understand. And for anybody that's looking for a job, 
The second job is really interesting, right? So the first one, you're like, to some degree, you're like, okay, I'm graduating August 1st. I got to have a job by the time I'm done, right? Otherwise, I'm going to look like a bum, right? Just hanging out and everybody's going to laugh at me and all the other fellows are going to be like, you're a loser. The second job, though, now suddenly the pressure's off. You have the luxury of time. There's no deadline for when you have to pick a job. And you know by that point what you like and what you dislike about your first job. I think one of the problems that everybody has is on their first job, they have this perception that it's going to be that job for the rest of their life. They're going to sign on with our mother, mercy of wonderful outcomes, and they're going to be there for 30 years and retire, right? It's not the reality. We all move at some point. But on the second go around, now suddenly you know more and you're a little bit smarter. The time pressure isn't there and you have the luxury of time to look and be careful about what's going on. And keeping your eyes opportunity, open for opportunities is a big deal. And that's where East comes in. A lot of networking there and a lot of fellowship there. Um, and I think the more time you spend at those events, the more you talk to people, the more you realize what's a good job, who, I who would I want to work for. You know, you begin to understand uh, where all the players are in the chessboard, so to speak. And it helps facilitate your growth, too, to say, hey, listen, this is what I'm looking for. You also have those funny career crossroads, right? You know, your lab gets shut down and you become an interim division chief. Now suddenly your next job is probably looking at a, you know, a, um, another division chief job or it's, um, you know, I'm interested in quality. So I want to be on the quality side of the house or the, the C-suite side. All that stuff begins to change and, and look much more interesting. So for somebody listening who, you know, is thinking to themselves, man, I want to be that guy. You know, I want to be president of East and I want to be a division chief. What advice do you have for him? Uh, so I think the first thing is it's hard to plan that thing out. It just doesn't, it doesn't, it's not a logical um, sequence. But we are planners, Bruce. I, I know we are, but it's just <laughs> not, it's just not the way. I thought coming out of fellowship that I knew exactly what I was going to be doing when I was my age now. And I was completely 100% wrong, 100% wrong. On the other hand, I'm really happy with where I am now. I enjoy what I'm doing. I enjoy scratching some of those intellectual itches that I have. I think the, the one thing I would say is just let it, let it roll a little bit and be curious. I think the other thing that's always been really important to me is to think about being innovative and don't, don't rest on what you're doing. Keep on looking for what else is out there, right? If, you know, 20 years ago, everything was an opening little hernia repair. Every appendectomy was an open, an open appy for me. And uh, abdominal wall reconstructions were like 12-hour cases I was doing with one of the plastics guys. If you look at where we are now, right, now we're starting to do some acute care surgical robotics and we're pushing the robot in our group. I think, you know, all of my, taking out all my appendixes is done with a laparoscope, you know, no questions, different, different animal. But I think you got to keep pushing and you got to keep innovating and you have to keep looking for the new things. And the, the new things are what are really interesting, right? That's where that's where the fun is. And that's where your career kind of gets exciting again. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Well, Bruce, it is always an absolute pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on the career cast. You betcha. Always <laughs> my pleasure. And look forward to seeing you at the meeting and uh, we'll buy you a beer and have some fun. Sounds great. See you then. <laughs> you got it. That's all for today's episode. The career casts are brought to you by the Career Development Committee. 
If you have an idea for an episode, you can submit a proposal at east.org under the Education and Career Development section. You can also find us on Twitter at east underscore trauma, and I'm at SM Streit. That's S-T-R-E-I-T. All right, until next time. Thank you.